Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence, the word and the act. You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Hello and welcome back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site. This should be intermission number 39. I don't think I'm going to go over an hour. If I do, then it's episode 261. But this should be intermission number 39. Uh, I am alone tonight, but I decided I should get something out for you guys. Originally, we were going to do American Pop, uh, Lady Lee and I, with uh, special guest Gary Hill. But... Our schedules got fucked up again. This is not Gary's fault at all. Um, I've put him on the hook now and and fucked him over two weeks in a row, basically. Um, I know Gary doesn't see it that way, but um, he's very, very uh, casual and very understanding about these sort of schedule things because he runs into them all the time himself, being a podcaster who does way too many podcasts. Um, but yeah... Uh, Lady Lee and myself, our schedules have been kind of crazy, and when they haven't been crazy because of things we have to do, uh, in my case, there's been some, like, illness and stuff in the family, and I've had to, like, put priorities in in that direction, and um, and things seem to be going well, in case anyone gives a shit. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with all the details and stuff like that, and uh, Lady Lee actually business for her at her work picks up quite a bit in summer so uh, it kind of has us running around like chickens with our heads cut off at times and we sometimes don't remember we got things to do and things we've planned and you know we did we don't think about it until the last minute and she's like oh I have a concert I'm going to this weekend and I was like oh really okay well then we will just push the episode to next time and that's what we did now she's going to see aqua by the way so there you go barbie girl and all that shit she likes it so she'll have fun i imagine but yeah um i decided i'm going to do an intermission episode um there's going to be no real editing here i'm running basically everything off the soundboard and recording as we go and i might i think the most editing i'm going to do is probably compress this fucker so it all sounds level, but that's about it. Uh, you're going to hear my fucking air conditioner in the background. You're going to hear lots of ums and ahs. Lots of times of me saying like, like, like this, like that, like blah, blah, blah. All the annoying shit that I hate, and I know a lot of people listening to podcasts hates uh, as well. Believe me, uh, I, I do get it. Um, but yeah, I just I felt like putting something out for you guys. I, I do feel bad when I don't get to put something out every week. And uh, luckily, I've had a 
bunch of movies I've watched lately, so I'm going to talk about this on the other side of the show. Um, before we get into that, I'm just going to mention sometime soon, and uh, I will put links to these, this stuff you know, in the coming weeks when it does show up, but I just want to announce it now. Um, so if you're aware, uh, Gary Hill, Cameron Scott, and myself are in the Last Call at Torchy's podcast together, where we're covering the Walter Hill films, and we also do the Patreon bonus stuff for uh, Legion podcast as well for that show. So, you know, if you, you got like an extra two bucks you want to throw to Legion podcast every month, you can hear our bonus episodes as well, which are pretty fun. Uh, so we, we're going through, you know, Walter Hill's stuff uh, in, you know, canonical order, of order of release. Um, we just did Crossroads, uh, the Ralph Macchio Crossroads. Uh, we had some fun with that. That's going to be out sometime soon. And along with that, we did the Walter Hill directed Tales from the Crypt episodes. And of course, he was a producer on Tales from the Crypt. From the Crypt, but he he did do three episodes himself as well. So uh, we did that as the Patreon bonus, and uh, we had a fun time with both of those shows. They should be out sometime fairly soon. Um, like I said, uh, Gary is also no stranger to personal life and stuff getting in the way of schedules and producing, uh, you know, podcast content and all that stuff. So uh, it'll be out when it's out. Should be sometime very soon. Um, also, I'm going to be guesting fairly soon, uh, next week, actually, on um, Motion Picture Massacre, Vaughn's excellent podcast, Motion Picture Massacre. He's doing a series on the Meatballs franchise, and I'm the lucky son of a bitch who gets Meatballs 2, the absolute dog shit worst in the fucking series, if you ask me. Um, but there is a lot of talk to talk about as far as the film actually goes. So uh, we did cover all the Meatballs films on this podcast quite a while back now. Um, but uh, I look forward to re-watching it, and maybe I'll like it better. Who knows? But um, Vaughn and I have fun talking about movies, so we should be able to pull an interesting conversation out of that one. And I don't know exactly when that stuff's going to drop. I think probably August or something like that. I don't know. But um, Vaughn, you know, he's setting up recordings with people new guest hosts on each uh, episode to uh, go through the Meat Beatballs quadrilogy. Did I say that right? I have no idea. And speaking of Vaughn, he sent me some feedback for tonight, so we're going to play that now. I have not listened to this yet, so let's see what Vaughn has to say. So, uh, yeah, I'm leaving this feedback to the uh, They Must Be Destroyed on Site podcast. Hi, hi. So, I don't know if this was the first film you ever saw that Baz Luhrmann put out, but he put out this piece of crap called uh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, my God, what a piece of crap. And if you grew up in my time period, you know, in the 19-fucking-90s, you, every goddamn girl in their world was jerking off to that film. Fucking never made any sense. Um, just boring crap and John Leguizamo and drag. I don't fucking get it. Um, anyway. But, like, Baz Luhrmann, he was always a bad director. Just mediocre. Kind of, I don't know how people, like, how executives give him so much fucking money. And like, go, go do whatever the fuck you want. And he makes these fucking elaborate pieces of shit. But then Joe Dante. I mean, Joe Dante, now that's a director. He went around and made toys come to life. Like, a whole movie about toys coming to life. That was great. And then he made a movie about holes. And he did something with, like, I don't know, Mogwai's or Gremlins. Or had Martin Short in the film where he was really tiny. And the asshole, I think Randy Quaid, was it? Or Dennis Quaid. 
one of them. Maybe Randy Quaid. Maybe deep in Randy Quaid's asshole. I don't remember. Anyway, um, yeah, I like the Ramones a lot. Uh, but that whole political thing you guys did at the start with the First Nations, yeah, you know, I'll give you the clap. Very good. It's very good to see that you white people have figured out, you know, that you've oppressed tons of people and are starting to understand that. You know, you've done it with the blacks and the and the Jews and you know the Mormons and the and now that you Caucasians are starting to realize that you're getting pushed out. You're starting to come to terms. You're like, ah, maybe we are not all that bad. Ah, don't kill us all. But you know what happens? What can I tell you? Eh, maybe all you white people deserve to die. I don't know. Maybe start killing yourselves first, and then we'll talk about it. Anyway, I gotta go. Did I tell you my name's Wayne? I don't know if I did. All right. Toodles. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was not Vaughn. That was his friend Wayne. Mm-hmm. I kind of got a feeling it was going to be Wayne anyway, because he hasn't said anything in a while. So, yeah, um, I'm working on the killing myself thing. I'm getting there, Wayne. Very slowly but surely. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not a big Baz Luhrmann fan, I gotta say. Uh, I have seen Romeo and Juliet. I had to watch it uh, in English class in high school. And that sucked. I I preferred, like, one, one year, one of my English teachers showed us, my, my cool English teacher, the one who looked like a pudgy Edgar Allan Poe, which... There's some sort of, like, double down on awesomeness there. Um, he showed us the original Romeo, well, not the original, but the one from the 70s with Olivia Hussey showing her boobies, and he showed it to us unedited. And then the next year, I think it was, we got the fucking Baz Luhrmann one, and we got fucking Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, and I was not into it. I think I... At that point, I was also very much traditionalist with my Romeo and Juliet takes. Like, I kind of liked stuff feeling antiquated and maybe, if not quite of period, at least something close to that. And seeing it put in the context of this, like, modern, like, weird, almost like a remake of Streets of Fire or some bullshit, you know, um, didn't work for me didn't work for me at all and I, I, I at that point I really didn't like Leo DiCaprio because uh, he was you know the new rat faced teen idol and I had I didn't think much of his acting back then changed my opinion of it now I think he's pretty fucking good but um, and Claire Danes I was like okay yeah she's she's alright she's the, the sort of hot thing at the time um, but yeah that movie did nothing for me not, I wasn't a big fan of Romeo and Juliet to begin with anyway, so, and at that point I was very, very much a cynical teenager, I was like, I've already seen Romeo and Juliet, I don't need to see another version, God, and that's kind of the attitude I had, but, um, yeah, thanks Wayne, and, uh, right back at you with that kill yourself thing, um, okay, we're gonna move on, so, you know what's coming up. You know what's going on with this uh, podcast. So uh, you guys listening all deserve this. We're going to play some podcast promos. 
little bit of music, and we're going to come back and talk about how many movies do I have here? One, two, three, four, five, six. We got seven movies to talk about. See if we can do it in under an hour. Warlock. Uh, there's the show called Movie Melt, and you probably know about it. Uh, and it's once every two. I have no idea how often this is uploaded. <laughs> and it's a show where a bunch of compañeros get together and we play some fun games, trivia mainly. Uh, we talk about new releases. Uh, we have some fun games where we try and guess the title of a movie based on stuff that really probably religious people write on imdb <laughs> yeah it takes about 20 hours to record there's always a failure midway through uh and then the highlight of the week of the of the show is um reviewing a movie usually it's kind of a interesting lesser known cult type movie and it's uh quite enjoyable it sounds good in theory yes <laughs> i might have a listen one day <laughs> wow. Motion Picture Massacre is dedicated to exploitation, cult, grindhouse, and horror films from the last 7,500 fucking years. I don't fucking know. It's everything. If you're interested in that, check out motionpicturemassacre.com or if you're on iTunes, search Motion Picture Massacre and you'll find it. This has been your announcer. Cowardly fuck your bags. Signing off. Eat a dick. You ungodly warlock.
All right, that was Karateka with Karate. Go figure, huh? Um, they have another single out, too, that I found on YouTube, and I don't know how I came across it, but I really love both of the songs. The other one is called Shaft and Karate, and it's literally just another catchy kind of 70s disco-ish tune with them going Shaft and Karate over and over again. And then they have like a little break going And it's great. Um, they're like a they were just like a French, I guess, bunch of studio musicians. And they did a couple recordings. And from what I've read, at least one of their songs shows up on like some sort of obscure Turkish like Superman ripoff film or something like that. And I've been trying to track it down and confirm that so I can stick one of their songs on my Blood on the Tracks show. But so far, I haven't been able to do it. Um, we'll see. Anyway, going on to the movies. Like I said, we've got seven movies here to uh, talk about. I'm going to try to be fairly brief talking about these, but uh, I want to go through them. And we're going to go chronologically. So we're starting in 1965, and a a few of these are stuff that have uh, shown up on Shudder as of late. Shudder is just fucking killing it with the stuff it dumps on its service now. used to be the old joke that Shudder only had like five movies. And, of course, I do rotate through things. Some things leave Shudder eventually, right? Just like on Netflix. But they have such an impressive goddamn library of stuff on there now. And they just keep dumping, like, tons of cool shit every month. Um, So we're going to start with Planet of the Vampires from 1965. Mario Bava. This is a beautiful goddamn film. Um... And it's also incredibly stupid and silly uh, at first. And I gotta say, Star Trek, you fucking hacks. Original series Star Trek, because, man, there is so much of the production design and the production value here that basically translates right to the original series Star Trek and the way they do things, how silly some things look. And, you know, it, it's them working within their budget, but at the same, try, same time trying to make things look futuristic. So you've got this crew of supposedly humans in the future, whatever, um, and they get a distress... They get, like, a distress signal on a planet, and there's another ship that crashes, and they gotta go and, like, rescue them and shit. And basically, the entire plot was later ripped off for Alien. That's that's kind of what you need to know. Like, they, they changed some of the circumstances and stuff, but a lot of this really influenced Alien, and it's got that haunted house and other space kind of feel to it. There, there's a gothic horror kind of underpinning to the whole thing that makes it interesting. So, like, the crew goes down, they find the crew of the other spaceship dead, um, then they find bodies of other aliens, you know, skeletons of other aliens, very much like the space jockey and aliens, uh, or an alien, I mean. Um, And yeah, it, like, the bodies of the other crew start to get reanimated by the spirits, or the, you know, the essence of the creatures on the planet, that uh, the the other aliens that crashed there or whatever, that were stuck there. Um, Star Trek, the original series 
and Star Trek The Next Generation both ripped off this plot for episodes in, in their in their respective shows. I, I'm pretty goddamn sure um, at least a lot of similar elements were ripped off. And like I said, it starts off really silly because like the translation of the dialogue and everything you know from Italian to English some of the stuff just doesn't work like it just sounds stupid on its face and again the costumes are dumb like they've got these big high like Dracula cape collars that are super stiff around their neck which would make it like just really uncomfortable to like move your head around in and probably fucks with your uh, <laughs> periphery as well when it comes to vision um, just looks stupid as shit but at the same time looks cool as shit um, so comparing that kind of stuff the, the production values with, with the dialogue and stuff it, anyone watching like the first half hour of this might want to turn it off but as you get into it it turns into like a serious horror movie with some very creepy and suspenseful stuff going on and it's got a real dark ending too um if you haven't seen it it's it's rightly considered a classic you have to stick with it though that's the only thing if if you're going to be dismissive of some of the silliness of it then you don't deserve to be rewarded with the awesomeness that comes at the end because it starts to get gory uh it's super creepy and man it's it's kind of cosmic horror um there's very much some cosmic horror elements to it and like i said it goes back to that haunted house in outer space kind of thing that uh, alien would take to further effect with a bigger budget and you know better production values and stuff but uh i say better production values but it's like it's mario bava here and the stuff he does with color the stuff he does with limited sets with uh smoke and colored gels on lights and just the way he shoots angles and stuff it's fucking brilliant it's one of his best films um just from a visual standpoint alone and just as like a the the mood it sets and the suspense it builds it's very very well done um Moving on, I'm going to talk about The Mutations from 1974. This is also known as uh, The Freak Maker, I believe. Freak Maker or Freak Makers. I can't remember which one it was, but it was like the alternate title. And this is directed by Jack Cardiff, of all people. And if you don't know who the fuck Jack Cardiff is, uh, he's only one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. Um, shot Black Narcissus, Red Shoes, African Queen, uh, later on Ghost Story and Dogs of War, Conan the Destroyer. Uh, he directed Sons and Lovers, which he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Director for. Um, he's done a lot of cool shit. And this was the last film he did as director, I believe. And not quite the coolest way to go out, but it's definitely an interesting film. Uh, it's got Donald Pleasance and Tom Baker in it as your sort of bad guy heavies. And um, I, I can never... I've, I've never looked up what her how to pronounce her last name, but Julie Ige? Ig? Iggy? I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Donald Pleasance is this crazy, like, biologist, I guess, who is hooked up with a freak show run by Tom Baker as this, like, 
he's got kind of like the elephant man's disease in his head where you know it's misshapen and shit and he drools and stuff like that and he's very menacing walking around in a big trench coat and a big fucking wide-brimmed hat and basically he's abducting people for donald pleasance to commit experiments on and donald pleasance is like a professor at a university or whatever uh his students make a ripe body of, of test subjects for experiments, so some of them start to go missing, and it kind of follows some of the students, although they're very uninteresting. Like, I, they're just kind of fodder. I didn't care about any of them, so that's a big problem, actually, in the film. Um, Donald Pleasance is just, you know, he's hamming it up the way he does. Like, he... Say what you will about some of the films he chose, he at least gives his, it his all. Um... And he's, he seems to be having fun here. Uh, Tom Baker is great as just kind of like this ghoulish uh, guy who's who hates himself because he's a freak. And he hates the freak show carnival that he's attached to and, and sort of strong-arming. Um, and one of the things about this film you got to know about before you go in is it does use actual quote-unquote freaks from a carnival sideshow of the time. So you do have some uh, little people, you have some people with some, you know, whatever genetic disorders uh, they may be uh, suffering from, um, whatever birth defects they might be suffering from. Uh, There's also a couple, I think, are just makeup jobs as well. So they threw a couple of, like, made-up ones in in there as well. And it's kind of, it feels very distasteful now. And this feels much more distasteful than Freaks, the original Freaks from the 30s. And this is essentially kind of a remake of that, kind of smashed into a Frankenstein remake. Because, you know, Donald Pleasance is trying to, like, create this super race of, like, people-plant hybrids. Um, And there's good and there's bad in that. Uh, Whenever you see, like, these Venus flytraps and these other, like predatory plants that Donald Pleasance has sort of like genetically grown to be bigger, they kind of look alright. They look like kind of the best stuff that Doctor Who was doing at the time as far as you know, TV special effects and shit like that, but you know, slightly better, a little bit more money behind them. So that stuff looks good, but then you get like the actual hybrids, and they kind of start looking like the worst stuff that (laughs) <laughs> that Doctor Who was doing at the time. Uh, some of this, just, they're the suit stuff that doesn't quite 100% work, and I kind of wish they had not done that, because it kind of takes away from the film. But, there's some cool stuff in here. Um, mostly, I'm, I'm really big on the uh, sort of stop motion, or not stop motion, but um, the sort of time lapse photography of Venus flytraps and other predatory plants that sort of play during the credits. Uh, there's a great score in here as well that is like very atonal and discordant and um, works very, very well. And, you know, other than that, it's kind of just silly monster movie shit. And uh, some of it really just doesn't work. And again, like I said, they're all of our leads, all of our quote-unquote heroes. I don't give a fuck about any of them. Um, so it's it's mainly just Donald Pleasance and Tom Baker who have to, like, rein this thing in. And they do a decent enough job. It's, it's, a, it's a nice curiosity to check out. I wouldn't necessarily say it's 100% like super recommended or anything. But if you have some time and you're, you're kind of curious, it, it's not a bad time 
Um, although, you know, again, like a, a trigger warning, I guess, um, if you are disturbed by the exploitation of sideshow people, and this is definitely much more exploitative than uh, the original Freaks was, I feel, in some ways, then you might not like this one. But this is, this is like a sleazier version of Freaks. Um, it's kind of like doing the stuff that... Um, what, oh, She-Freak, which came a few years before this. I think it was in the 60s, She-Freak was, right? She-Freak kind of does a little bit of this, which is also kind of a remake of Freaks. Um, but it, She-Freak couldn't push as far as this one does because it shows some nudity and stuff like that. So there you go. Moving on, 1979, directed by Enzo G. Castellari, The Shark Hunter. And this is Franco Nero starring in this. And this is the Franco Nero show, man. Um, this is Franco Nero playing this, like, PTSD'd beach bum who, I guess he lost his entire family, um, and now he's just, he's got a hate on for sharks. And he, he fishes sharks, and he's just kind of like this wild man who lives on the beach, uh, somehow manages to seduce local hotties, because he's Franco Nero, of course. No matter how much you dirty him up, he's still Franco Nero underneath all that. But, um, yeah, he, he, like, he fishes sharks from the shoreline, and then he'll run out into the ocean to get them. Like, he'll jump in a boat. Sometimes he'll just wrestle them in the water. Franco Nero cannot be stopped. And on top of that, they throw in this sort of crime suspense plot that he gets involved in with sunken treasure uh, so it, it kind of becomes the deep like the Italian ripoff version of the deep basically and it's the Franco Nero show and honestly I kind of loved it uh, <laughs> it's, it's fucking stupid as shit it's cheap as fucking shit it's one of Castellari's cheapest fucking films honestly like it looks terrible um, I don't even know if cleaning it up would help any but uh, it, it, it's just, it's bad. There's stock footage and stuff like that. Plenty of stock footage of sharks. I think they kill some real sharks on screen. So again, trigger warning there. But um, it's Franco Nero and Castellari, and they pretty much always worked well together. And so I kind of love it. It's it's stupid as fuck, but I kind of love it. I, I think it's pretty great. Um, and that's all I want to say about it. I don't want to sh- spoil too much of it. And it's also, it's also got a DeAngelis Brothers, uh, a.k.a. Oliver Onion's score to it, too. That's cool. One of their funky 70s scores. Um, so, I mean, it's got some big selling points, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if you disagree, then I don't know if we can be friends, honestly, because that that's all shit that really gets me moving in the pants. So, um, there we go. Uh, moving on now to 1990. Dark Angel also known as I Come in Peace, and that's the better fucking title. I don't know why they didn't use that title for Shudder. This is this is another one on Shudder, by the way. Mutations was also on Shudder. Um, this is Craig R. Baxley, uh, mostly known as a stuntman, and like a, he did a lot of second, union, second unit directing. Uh, he, di- he did second unit directing on uh, Predator and The Long Riders. Uh, he directed also a handful of stuff himself, including this and uh, Action Jackson and Stone Cold. So, you know, he's got some bona fides under his belt there. He's, you know, he's comfortable with uh, sort of filming these macho man action 
films with lots of cool shit in it. Uh, and this is no different here. This, this is pretty fucking great. Um, of course, there's been films before this that that uh, do some of the same things that this film does. It's a, it's a buddy cop movie with Dolph Lundgren and Brian Benben, of all people, as the sort of straight man. Uh, of course, Brian Benben, if you don't know him, he was in Dream On on HBO, which was a big hit for them back in the day. And he did like the Brian Benben show and didn't do a lot more after that. Like, he's, he's done some things, but I think he's just kind of more cool with being low-key and banging his hot wife. What, what's his wife's name? Uh, Madeline Stowe, I think he's married to? And he's been married to her since, like, the 80s? So, like, good, good for him. Good for you, man. Um, but yeah, it's a buddy cop movie, but it's got the sci-fi bent, so it's like alien drug dealer comes down, injects people with heroin and kills them so he can then extract their endorphins or whatever the fuck. And that's like the big alien drug out there in the galaxy somewhere. And and then every once in a while, he'll you know come up to one of his victims and go, I come in peace. And, like, he's this big, tall, motherfucker, albino-looking son of a bitch with a big forehead and long hair. Got, like, a skullet going on. There's another alien uh, who's an alien cop who shows up hunting him, and he's got an even worse skullet. Um, and, of course, he kind of, like, uh, asks... He, he gets killed, and he asks... Uh, before he dies, he asks asks uh, Dolph Lundgren to like, you gotta catch this guy and stop him because if he gets back to our home planet with this drug everybody's gonna come back to your planet and just start killing people willy-nilly to get this drug. So, you know there's some stakes here um, it's stupid as fuck, but it's super entertaining, good action in it um, just all kinds of cool elements that are kind of like it's the movie you want to bridge the 1980s into the 1990s. It's got all those 80s tropes, but then it's like predicting where 1990s direct-to-video sci-fi and stuff like that was going to go. It's got a lot of those aesthetics all sort of mashed into one film, and it's pretty fucking good, man. I, I thoroughly enjoy this one. It's kind of like, it's always kind of sort of flown under the radar for people, and now that it's on Shudder, I hope more people see it. It's really, really fun. And Dolph Lundgren, it's one of his best roles, and he works really well with Brian Binben here, too. They got really good chemistry, I feel like, so um, it's good stuff. Uh, next, we're going to talk about, from 1996, Head of the Family. Directed by Charles Band. It's a full moon picture. This one's on Shutter as well. Um, this is probably one of the best full moon pictures, and I know that's not saying a lot, but this one is fairly original for them. Um, they stopped themselves from going with like tiny little puppets, and instead they got this big puppet here with the big, the, basically the small guy with the giant head who is the head of the family. And he mind controls his siblings. Uh, one of them's super hot, which he uses to seduce men. One's like this giant fucking strong man, and the other one can like see really, really well. He's got big buggy eyes when he takes his sunglasses off. It's it's very gimmicky, cool stuff. It's kind of got a southern gothic feel to it. It's like a lot of con man, like our protagonists are basically uh, not that great either. And so it's like a battle between 
uh, this sort of skeezy th- southern con man and his uh, his girlfriend against the titular head of the family who, you know, wants to do, like, brain experiments on people. There's all kinds of cool little gore things here. The production values are pretty fucking good for a full moon picture. Um, I think the acting is all kind of fun. It's also super sleazy. Um, the very attractive Jacqueline uh, Lovell. Or is it Lovell? Jacqueline Lovell? I, I, I've never heard her name pronounced, but I've seen her in plenty of things. Um, she gets gloriously naked in this film plenty of times for, you know, sort of fun comical sex scenes and stuff like that. Uh, typical of the time. Um, and she's, she did a bunch of like softcore stuff. I think she might even did some hardcore stuff. I don't know, but she, she is, if you've watched any sort of like 1990s Skinamax shit, she pops up in a lot of that stuff. Um, so you'll recognize her and she's fun in this. Uh, she's, you know, she's sort of a scheming Southern, uh, hussy, basically. Um, her previous boyfriend's like a biker who runs afoul of the head of the family because uh, uh, her prospective boyfriend basically arranges for it via uh, blackmail. Um, so it, it's got some fun little like back and forth uh, stuff here between uh, our, our giant-headed guy and the sort of scheming southern con man and, and Jacqueline Ovell kind of wants a piece of things herself and uh, it's it's good it, for a full moon picture it's way better than you'd expect um, it doesn't have a bunch of little puppet people running around which is great because I hate that shit um, and yeah the only I think honestly the only thing I don't like about this is Richard Band's score is dog shit it is like the worst like library music sounding shit that would like pop up on just low budget trash all through this decade and there's no excuse for it honestly other than the bands are fucking notorious cheapskates um if they could rescore this with something decent this this movie would be way better it would move up several notches for me it might even move up to like best full moon picture you know like it might be I might consider it better than although I guess technically Torch Trap isn't technically a full moon picture although I, I guess it kind of falls under that banner now because it was what Empire Pictures before or whatever but you know best thing Charles Band ever had his name attached to anyway it, 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 would, it, would, it would rank up above Taurus Trap if only they could change the score uh, but this is a lot of fun it's a good trashy film check it out alright moving on 2021 Dune Denis Villeneuve 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 I don't know um, and of course there's a lot of big names in this uh, I don't know like the like the the principal main couple leads. I, one of them's what Zendaya. Okay, I kind of know her. Um, the other one I don't know. The the guy who plays uh, Paul Atreides. But then you get, you get all these like really solid supporting actors all around them. So you got like Oscar Isaac, Dave Bautista, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem. Um, so what Stellan Skarsgård is in this or? Is it Scars Stellan Skarsgård? I can't remember the guy who plays Baron Harkonnen. Anyway, although he's you know he's not fat enough in this movie, I gotta say. Um, so I'm not a big fan of Dune. I read some of the first book, 
and I never really got into it. Um, I like some of the ideas in it, and I, I recognize how important it is to sci-fi as a whole. Uh, I, I like, you know, some of the things it has to say about um, imperialism, this sort of crushing weight of uh, capitalism and imperialism on, on society and people. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's got all those elements in this version, too. Uh, it had some of those elements in the David Lynch version. Um, I got to say, I like the David Lynch version better than this. And I'm not going to argue that this one isn't a overall better production it, it looks great it's it's you know it's studio sheen epic is what i'd say like it, it's got that studio sheen to it it's got the whole formulaic epic quality to it that studios want these days it's got all the money behind it um it's got great actors and they do they do their job it's it's an excellent adaptation it, it's it sticks to the text very very well um has no fucking balls, though, I don't think. Uh, and it's not very interesting to look at, as far as I'm concerned. Some people might disagree. This might be right up their fucking alley. I found it kind of boring. Um, I find it kind of dull and gray a lot, which I'm not into. Uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and say the David Lynch version is a, necessarily a great movie either. I don't really think it is. But it's got way more balls. It's, maybe, it's not afraid to be weird. Um, and I was trying to think, I was trying to think like, yeah, what, what is the difference here? And then I heard, uh, my friend Jack Graham from, uh, I don't speak German talking about this on another podcast he does. Um, and they were sort of, he was sort of talking about how it just has no real soul to it. It's just not weird enough. It doesn't take any chances, and it really doesn't. That that it kind of really came together to me. It was like, yeah, that's that's what it is. It, it David Lynch at least took chances and wasn't afraid to be weird and afraid to make things look maybe kind of goofy. This this film tries its best to be so fucking just on point with everything it tries it's so fucking hard to be just picture perfect and everything has to look a certain way and the aesthetic has to be so fucking um precise and i feel like all the life got squeezed out of it because of it and also it's two and a half hours long and it has really no as much as I should have disdain for like a three act structure, it kind of doesn't have it. <laughs> it, it kind of gets to its climax halfway through the film, and then you got this like long, drawn out, like, okay, what else is going on? Um, it it kind of loses steam, man. It really does. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a shitty film. I'd, I'd still recommend people see it. It's just not for me. That's kind of where I have to sit at that. Okay, moving on, our last film we're going to talk about here. This is The Black Phone from 2021. Uh, it was directed by Scott Derrickson. Um, you might know some of his stuff. He did The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I'm not a fan of. He did the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Never saw that. Never need to. He did Sinister, which is, ah, eh, it's all right. And he did Doctor Strange, the first Doctor Strange, which is pretty good. Although I'd, I'd argue Multiverse of Madness is better. Um, 
But yeah, Black Phone this is based on a Joe Hill story. Uh, Joe Hill, son of Stephen King. Um, and it's a very good story, by the way. Uh, totally recommended. And this is, you know, it involves a serial killer who abducts children and puts them in his uh, creepy dungeon basement that's soundproof. And, you know, he plays games with them and toys with them until he gets bored with them and then kills them. And the killer is played by Ethan Hawke. I think he does a pretty good job here. I saw some people complain that he seems, like, really stupid. Like, he doesn't take as many precautions as he should. And I can see that point of view, but at the same time, I think about how many real-life serial killers got away with the shit they got away with simply because they were lucky and people looked the other way all the time. And that... I, I, I'm, allowed to, I'm allowing for the film to get away with that. I'm, I'm all right with it, because I think Ethan Hawke does a good job of being really creepy here, where he wears different masks, and each mask has a different personality be behind it. So he'll come down and visit his victims in the basement with uh, different personalities sometimes. I will say, though, maybe we learned a little too much about Ethan Hawke. I would have liked his character, uh, the Grabber, um, to be a little less fleshed out. If we had known a little less about him and his psychology, I, I kind of would have appreciated that more. It would have made him more creepy. Um, because the movie spends so much time focusing on the victims, and it should have spent more time fo focusing on the victims. So it's basically about his latest victim who gets abducted, and he's, you know, uh, the star of this thing. And we sort of the star of this thing. We'll get to that in a second. But he gets abducted, and he's in the basement. Uh, a couple of his friends, people he's known in the neighborhood, have already been abducted and killed. And so now he's stuck down there, and there's the titular, the black phone on the wall, which is disconnected. It's an old phone. But it rings, and only he can hear it. The killer can hear it, too, but he thinks he's just hallucinating and shit like that. And, he, you know, he's already fucking crazy, so who knows. But, um... The, our main protagonist here he thinks he can hear the phone he picks it up and he starts talking to the ghosts of the past victims needed more ghosts needed more conversation between the ghosts because that stuff is super creepy it's written super creepy um, and this does a great job of ad ad adapting that story uh, although at the same time I'll say this film does the sort of Let's take all the best elements of Joe Hill's stuff that feels like his dad's stuff and really focus on that. So some of Joe Hill's own individual sort of way he writes and stuff is kind of stripped away and they focus on the stuff that's similar to what his dad does. And I can understand why they do that for the film because Stephen King shit is selling really well these days on film and people are here for it. Uh, they, you know, they want the the really well-written kids. They want the creepy fucking super fucked up killers. Uh, they want, you know, kids with psychic powers and shit like that. So all that stuff, it checks boxes for people who want to make movies and shit, right? So, but this movie, to its credit, it focuses on those things and does them all pretty well. Um, the Our main protagonist's sister, she's the real hero of this. She has some sort of psychic ability. She's like a, I guess a precog would be what she is. And she can sort of see things happening and see and she can like kind of get into people's, kind of like into their dreams and stuff. Like it's really weird how it's done. Like she, 
she she runs into sort of gets into people's dreams and can kind of like sit there next to like ghosts and stuff and um very strange but uh it works it's creepy um and so she's trying to track down where her brother is before it's too late and i i thought it worked i thought it was fine like i said i i, ho- I kind of wish they'd pulled back from ethan hawk's background a little too much you know like they, they just maybe made him a little bit more mysterious would have been better uh there's this I'm just going to spoil this. There's this subplot with his brother that's uh, visiting in town, who's a co-kid, who's trying to uncover, you know, who the killer is. He doesn't know his brother's doing it, and that subplot needed to be fucking ejected from this. Uh, it is... It doesn't work at all. It's just so throwaway. Could spend more time focusing on the protagonist's sister and the stuff she's going through, and the protagonist and the ghosts. More ghost stuff because it didn't get enough of it. Um, I like also to flesh out the other victims before they became ghosts. Um, Darkson uses this sort of technique with you know like. 70s looking, you know, filters or whatever on the on the fucking footage, but to make like home movies. So we get these like seven late 70s style home movies showing these these kids doing their thing, and then they sort of they're they're sort of home movies and they're sort of flashbacks at the same time. It's a neat little technique. I like it. Um, yeah, check it out. It, it's it's a good one. Uh, it's a decent horror film. It's probably, I'd, I'd say it's probably Scott Derrickson's best thing he's done so far. Um, I like it. All right. So I guess we're done. Did I get under an hour? Let me just, uh, pop up, um, right under an hour. All right. Sweet. (laughs) 51 minutes. Okay. Um, I'm going to take off. Hopefully it'll be American pop next time next weekend hopefully we'll see how our schedules are going uh but that is the next movie for us to do in a full episode on but uh until then we're gonna go out with a cool song by the band exists and this is night rider they just have a new album out i should have put this information down it's exists x-i-s-t-s or just like a fairly unknown little independent project um what what's the fucking uh Seth and Joseph Hudson and Joseph Hudson he's dead now uh some people might recognize that name yeah, he was also known as Josephus he was a pro wrestler he was uh in the NWA and he was uh recently most known as the question mark in the NWA and he died, I think, of an aneurysm or something like that. Like, so fucking young. I don't... I think he was just 40 at the most or something like that. And he died. Very, very sad. Because he was a very talented guy. And so the, this band kind of does, like, um, really experimental, like, synth pop, electronica stuff. And uh, this one, Night Rider, um, it's movie-themed. That's why I picked it. Because it's focused on the Knight Rider character from Mad Max. So we're going to go with that. Thanks for listening, guys. Much appreciated. Again, sorry we didn't get a full regular episode out. Um, But, you know, shit happens. Cheers.
You've been listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. For further episodes of this podcast, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts and pretty much any podcatcher that you can find. Thank you. Drive through.